the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. If we look to the answer as to why for so many years we achieved so much, prospered as no other people on earth, it was because here in this land we unleashed the energy and individual genius of man to a greater extent than has ever been done before. This great nation will endure as it has endured. Let me assert my firm belief that the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. Freedom and the dignity of the individual have been more available and assured here than in any other place on earth. You are about to embark upon the great crusade toward which we have striven these many months. The eyes of the world are upon you. The hopes and prayers of liberty-loving people everywhere march with you. We're not, as some would have us believe, doomed to an inevitable decline. I do not believe in a fate that will fall on us no matter what we do. I do believe in a fate that will fall on us if we do nothing. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other thing, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. My country tears me. Sweet land of liberty of Beyonce. As for the enemies of freedom, those who are potential adversaries, they will be reminded that peace is the highest aspiration of the American people. We will negotiate for it, sacrifice for it. We will not surrender for it now or ever. We are Americans. This is Always Right Radio on AM 1420, The Answer. Here's your host, Bob France. I do believe that's our cue. Good morning to you. Thanks very much for joining us this morning. We get started now at, let's count them, nine minutes after the hour of nine o'clock on this Tuesday. It's the 24th morning of the 10th month in the year of our Lord, 20. 23. We are loaded up today. Coming up in less than a half an hour, an early treat with our friend Jack Windsor. Uh, Jack Windsor uh, normally does commentary with us on Wednesdays, uh, but he has had some new responsibilities taking up his his, uh, late morning hours as he is uh, actually helping us at Salem Radio. He's been guest hosting the Bruce Hooley Show on The Answer down in Columbus, which is very, very cool as Bruce recovers from a pretty serious medical condition. And uh, so Jack has been a little bit too busy to join us for our regular 11 o'clock hits on Wednesday. So Jack is going to come in with us here at about uh, 9.35 this morning in about less than a half an hour. We're going to talk about issue one, among other things. Issue one, we're going to talk about uh, some of the Ohio media and their coverage of issue one, including, but not limited to, the Cleveland.com story this morning that I was just made aware of uh, about um, some early early voting, early tabulations. How about that? Um, Fewer Ohioans have voted early so far, 
ahead of the November elections. There is more heavy voting, apparently, in the rural areas than in the inner cities in Ohio, which is a positive development, I think, for the no on issue one side of things. Of course, now that they're publicizing this, that just warns the other side to get out there and vote more. So it's, you know, it could all balance out in the end. But uh, not just Cleveland.com, but also uh, the Toledo Blade. The Toledo Blade, for those who don't know, and I don't want to go too far into this right now as I've got a lot of other things to do, but the Toledo Blade makes the Cleveland Plain Dealer, which is extremely left-wing, and the Columbus Dispatch, which is even more left-wing than the Cleveland Plain Dealer, the Toledo Blade makes both of them look like Newsmax. That's how left-wing the Toledo Blade is. And do you know that their editorial board issued an endorsement in Issue 1? And they are endorsing no on Issue 1. Even they say it goes, Seth is in the other room right now, just astounded. You, you, ever, you ever read the Blade, Seth, or ever look at any of their stuff online? you know anything about them? They are, you can go ahead. Yeah, no, I, uh, no, I don't. Yeah, Seth. Seth uh, doesn't realize we're doing radio. Thinks well, it's TV, and then when yeah, he shakes yeah. his head, people know that he answered. Uh, <laughs> no, I'm not a big Toledo Blade reader. Yeah, and, and why would you be? Of course, now, I worked there for a number of years, uh, and so I know a lot about it. Uh, not at the Blade in Toledo, though. You know, right. doing doing radio in Toledo. And uh, the Toledo Blade honestly makes uh, some of these other, you know, left-wing papers look conservative by comparison. They're owned by John Robinson Block, who owns like a Pittsburgh, what, Post-Gazette or one of the left-wing papers in Pittsburgh as well. Their company is just extremely and dangerously left, um, w- which I've known for a long time and I kind of put behind me once, you know, I came home to Cleveland back in 2006 and have been doing radio here ever since. Um but uh, when I saw that headline that the Toledo Blade endorsed no on issue one, I just thought, wow, that, you know, even they realize this is too much. I'll read part of the editorial later, but even they realize that this is too much. I didn't know there was a paper that was more left than Cleveland.com. Right. Well, first of all, the dispatch in Columbus is worse than the plain deal. Wow. Now, I don't know a ton about the Youngstown Vindicator or the Cincinnati Inquirer, again, I think they're left of center, probably not, again, as bad as uh, the Dispatch is, but the Blade is worse than all of them, in my view, anyway, from having wow. read it read it, and, and talked to people who work there about it, and again, covering the same stories they covered, but from every different angle uh, from back in the day. Uh, but, it, you know, it, it says something to me when a really, really radical pro-choice which is what they would call it. You know me. I think the opposite of life is death. I looked it up. The opposite of life is not choice. So if you're a pro-life, the opposite of that is pro-death. They're quote-unquote pro-choice as they would see it. But um, for a pro-choice left-wing newspaper to say issue one goes too freaking far, uh, that says something. Maybe it says something good. I don't know. I'm still not optimistic about winning with no on issue one. But I'm a little less pessimistic this moment than I was 20 minutes ago before you told me about this uh, article and about uh, uh, rural voting being bigger right now, at least in the early voting. Because that's what I've been saying. And I know I'm getting off on this tangent. But um, as I've said numerous times here, we can't continue to rely on coming back from an early voting deficit on Election Day. When I say we, I'm talking about more conservative-minded voters, Republican voters, and we don't all vote as a block, obviously, but this is a, so it's a generality. 
But generally speaking, it's true. We don't like the early voting thing. We like simple one-day elections, count them all up, and at the end of the day, we know we don't like this waiting two or three weeks. Okay, now we got to count the early ones, and then we got to count the absentees, and then we got to count the mail-ins, and, you know, we find out, you know, two weeks later who won the elections. Uh, we don't like that, typically, so we kind of, you know, we, in, a, in an almost effort to provide the resistance, I don't like that phrasing, but that's... All I can come up with at the moment, our way of resisting that that changing of the voting standards, which, of course, opens it up to so much more fraud, has been to say, well, we're not participating. We're not doing early voting. I'll see you on Election Day like it ought to be in the good old days. And I'm I actually share that view so I can make fun of it with my voice as I just did all I want. But I feel that way, except that it's come, you know, it, it's it's past time for us to realize and admit that it's failing because they're getting out there and banking votes for 30 solid days, and then on election day, when we come out there, <clears throat> now it's our turn, we don't have enough. We don't have enough time. Sometimes the lines are jacked up. Sometimes the machines are jacked up, and we get screwed. So I've been just trying to embrace the reality that they are winning the early voting battles by large numbers that we can't overcome on election day. Um, it's just the reality of it. And my football metaphor remains. We, you know, there's 30 days. That's four weeks. It's like four quarters of a football game. And then election day is like the two-minute warning at the end of the game. If we lose for four straight quarters, four straight weeks of early voting, we're not going to be able to make up that deficit in the two minutes that are left in the game on election day. I hope that, you know, like I said, for non-football fans, I... I apologize, but for those who get that, I hope it makes sense. We have to score points in the first, second, third, and fourth quarters in order for the two-minute warning to be uh, irrelevant. Uh, let's, let's, let's make sure we are there, at least tied, if not in a lead, going into that, that two-minute warning on Election Day, and then we bring it home that day. So get out there and vote in the first week, the second week, the third week, and the fourth week, and we're already, what, are we in the third quarter now? Yeah, we're in the third quarter now. Yesterday, I guess, would have started the third quarter in my metaphor. This coming Monday would be the start of the fourth quarter, and then, of course, November 7th is Election Day. So, yeah, yeah, you got to get out there and get to your Board of Elections and vote early. So that was much more than I wanted to do in the open about that, but uh, it's important information. So Jack Windsor discusses that and other stuff with us at 935. It is Tuesday, and you know that means it's a curse in our day, so Pete will be with us at 1010 for commentary. And then at 1110, John Hagan is on the Ohio Board of uh, Education we're going to get an update from him on the attempted, I don't know, takeover of Ohio education by Governor Mike DeWine by way of the uh, creation of the uh, uh, OBEW, which is Ohio Board of Education and Workforce, which would essentially kind of strip the real power from the Board of Education and put it in the hands of a an unelected, hand-picked, appointed, um, you know, education czar. Kind of a kind of a thing at the uh, at the governor governor's level, so you know you might think, well, that's better than the left wing board members that are on the on the Ohio State Board of Education now, pushing and promoting left wing activism in classrooms instead of education. But what happens when there's a Democrat governor and he appoints a left wing ODEW czar, and that individual who's unelected can go more radical than even the Ohio board is. It's a very dangerous maneuver, and it's one that even conservatives and, strangely, conservatives and leftists, generally speaking in Ohio, are pushing back against. John Hagan's on the Ohio board. We're going to talk to him about that. 
uh, at 11 today. By the way, I wasn't going to start with this either, but since I just brought up the uh, education stuff, do you know why the United States is failing on the world stage when it comes to competition with the other advanced, developed countries with which we compete on a global economic and geopolitical level. Do you know why we continue to struggle? Do you know why we went from being at the top of the world to down in the 30s when it comes to math and sciences and education, a lot of other educational aspects? If you don't know, you should know. Um, We just gave up trying to educate. We have decided in large part because George Floyd died, we have decided to stop educating our kids or stop demanding that they learn. This, uh, this is a, a study, not a study, rather it's a story that I, you know we've seen before, but every time we see new ones, I just get more and more frustrated, angry, and disgusted by And that is uh, in Oregon, which, of course, as you know, is a far-left, radically blue state. In Oregon, they have just basically decided grades don't matter. Um, We are going to uh, we are going to have to do something because black kids and uh, other kids of color can't pass tests. So, out of deference to them, we're not going to make them. No more, no more passing grades are required to get to get uh, uh, diplomas. It's a remarkable development. An absolutely remarkable and disgusting development, quite frankly. But this is what they're doing, and they're not alone. This is just, again, the latest. This is is Oregon, but it's happening in some other states as well, not necessarily on a statewide level in every case, but certainly at the um, uh, uh, individual district level. There are more and more of them. We're going to say, well, nobody can get a zero. Even if you cheat, or don't turn in your assignment, the lowest you can get is 50%. 60% is passing, so it's still a fail, but if they fail and cheat on a, a bunch of things, they don't get zeros, they'll get 50s, and then if they actually do a little bit of work, they can get it up over 60% and, and pass. It is complete surrender, is what it is. It is complete and total surrender. The refusal to require education and to require passage in order to get diplomas and that is harming this country in so many ways if you didn't see that the headline blue state it's oregon suspends basic skills graduation requirement again citing harm to students of color oregon diplomas looking more like participation prize former governor candidate says and he's right this is hurting us so much and, and, and why did I bring up George Floyd? Because everything went, uh, changed when George Floyd died. When George Floyd died, and I got stories on that too. When George Floyd died, mind you, I said died, not was killed, not was murdered, because that's not true. When George Floyd died, stealing became legal. Rioting became legal if you were rioting on behalf of some sort of a marginalized community cause. If you are rioting, stealing, looting uh, on behalf of ethnic minorities, racial minorities, it became okay. Um, Sentencing, policing, 
let's put that in order, actually. Policing, prosecuting, and sentencing became unnecessary because George Floyd died. I mean, so many things. I'm going to go into a deep, deep dive about this, in fact, later today when I talk to Larry Elder for the TV show, which, by the way, episode one is uh, tomorrow on Roku Channel 529, 6 o'clock tomorrow morning, uh, and then they'll be on demand. Every new episode will be available on demand whenever you want to watch it. Anywho, uh, we're gonna, I'm interviewing uh, Larry Elder ab- about this and other things uh, uh, a little bit later today, but George Floyd was not murdered George Floyd died of a massive fentanyl overdose along uh, uh, along with methamphetamines. Tucker Carlson did a huge, huge show on his Twitter uh, Twitter space a couple of days ago. Took a sledgehammer to one of the greatest false idols the left ever produced. Career criminal, violent, gun-using, menacing criminal George Floyd, who has been literally canonized as a saint. A martyr, just a good, honest, hardworking black man who was murdered by a soulless white cop in 2020. That's the new story, and and it really started being told the moment he died. And we're three years on now, and people have just completely made up the reality of what the George Floyd story is. Tucker just ripped uh, the, the curtain back on this. He hosted, it was on Friday. His latest Tucker on X, which used to be called Tucker on Twitter, uh, brought attention to a massive report and autopsy and, 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 and testimony that nobody had heard before um, about what happened to George Floyd. And George Floyd was not murdered. George Floyd did not die of asphyxiation because he couldn't get air because his, somebody was kneeling on his back. Uh, it, that's not how he died. That's not why he died. But that story changed everything in America. That myth changed everything in America. We are in a worse place now with race relations than we have been since the Civil Rights Act was passed and we made things so much better back in 1964. 20 years ago, race relations were at their peak. We were at, I think it was some 74% was the number in national surveys, which encountered blacks and whites and Hispanics and everyone. Uh, how do you feel about race relations in America? Uh, is it satisfactory or not or whatever? It was like 74% said, yeah, race relations are good. Under 20% said they were bad and somewhere in the middle. Uh, now it's like, you know, what, in the teens? Why? Because racism and race, uh, well, how do I want to phrase that? Racial, um, not integ- well, I could, I could say racial integration. Because this is what we're seeing, of course, now is the opposite of that. We have gone from integration to racial segregation, not by whites, which used to, of course, segregate whites and blacks before the Civil Rights Act, which, of course, was terrible back in Jim Crow, but by blacks voluntarily saying we want our own places, we want our own universities, we want our graduations, we want our own spaces. But race relations have deteriorated so much because it's big money. There is such a huge amount of money in racial arson. And that's why you see people with Zippos and cans of lighter fluid all over the place, uh, particularly on the radical left. So anyway, that's a bit of a digression from what I really wanted to start with the program with today. But uh, it's uh, 25 minutes after the hour. I got Jack Windsor coming up after the bottom of the hour. We say we do our pledge, Seth. Yeah, let's do our pledge of allegiance before we uh, take our first time out here. So Patriots, I told you we got a ton of information to share today. And I uh, hope you're uh, hope you're buckled up for it because it's a lot of important stuff. But let's start with our uh 
Pledge of Allegiance. Stand and face your flag. If you have one, put your hand on your heart and join us. If you are a believer in the racial segregation and the racial arson that continues to be practiced by the American left, which is harming this country so drastically, well, then you don't believe in this country, so don't pretend. You don't have to pledge. Just take a knee and do your socialist thing over there. As for the rest of us, I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands, one nation, under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. All right, 26 minutes after the hour, Always Right Radio locked in. we got a break coming up. we got Windsor on the other side of that. Stay here on Always Right Radio. Enlightening the sleeping masses and stoking the fire of the American dream. Always Right Radio with Bob Prance on The Answer. You know, today is the first show uh, in the last two weeks that we have not opened with something related to Israel. That does not mean we are ignoring Israel or the war or the extraordinary response to it from the from the United States and from the international community, and it's not in a positive way. We have a lot to get into on that today, but we are talking about a lot of local issues this morning, at least we were in the open, and I want to read a line to you or two before I bring Jack in uh, to talk about this. Editorial in the Toledo Blade, which is a left-wing newspaper that makes other left-wing newspapers look conservative by comparison. Shockingly, this is their editorial endorsement. This is the Blade editorial board. This isn't an op-ed from some pro-lifer, okay? This is the left-wing Blade editorial board. When it comes to deciding issue one on the November 7th ballot, Ohioans should consult their conscience. The fetus is surely a life, a member of the human race. As a society, we should respect the right of the fetus to its own life. But it's not that simple. The interests of the fetus are intertwined with those of the mother. It's her body, and she has rights. And then it goes on to really address this in what I feel like is a pretty comprehensive way, looking at all of the issues from both sides. And the blade has 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 sided uh, uh, with 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 life in this case, agreeing with Mike Dewine and Fran Dewine, who in the pro uh, or excuse me the anti issue one commercials say, even if you're pro choice, this amendment to the Ohio Constitution just goes too far. That's the position of the blade. Their close is the blade has always supported women's rights to an abortion. This amendment to the state constitution goes too far and should be defeated. I was blown away by that. All right, let's bring in our good friend uh, Jack Windsor, who's got a news publication of his own. You might have heard of it. We talk about it all the time. It's the Ohio Press Network. He's the founder and the editor-in-chief. And, of course, as I mentioned, Jack is, uh, has moved up to radio as well now as he continues to work with our Salem sister station down in uh, Columbus, uh, The Answer in Columbus. He's filling in for Bruce Hooley while he recovers from a medical condition. So Jack is well-versed on all of this stuff. Jack Windsor, welcome back. Good to have you, my friend. How are you? Hey, Bob. I'm super fantastic. Thanks for uh, inviting me back in. It's good to be with you and the listeners. How, how are you enjoying the radio world on a daily basis? Uh, you know, I, I appreciate it. I enjoy it. Uh, I think it's a really good way to take some of what we uh, cover in the news and extend it and, and get deeper on topics, which I think is critical at this juncture, given where we are as a state and a country. So I think it's fantastic. Yeah, well, uh, I have no doubt you're doing great at it. You certainly do a great job with us whenever we have you on. So um, so let's dial it. First of all, 
you can re- react to what I just said is, you know, you and I have been discussing issue one and to a lesser extent issue two, but it's very, very important as well over the course of the last few weeks, Jack. But um, react to the left wing blade endorsement of a no on issue one. And then I guess you have a Toledo blade story to share as well. Go ahead. Yeah. So, um, you know, the Toledo blade story is actually the opposite, I think, and, and, and would have had me guessing that maybe they had their head in the sand. But um, look, I, kudos to them. Right. Uh, there are a couple adages that come to mind. A broken clock is right twice a day and uh, the sun shines on a dog's rear end even once in a while. So uh, it's fantastic that they got it right. Although based on what you read, I would argue that they, they, they did get it wrong in some regard. Right. There's there's doing the right thing and then there's doing the right thing. Right. Well, doing the right thing is saying, well, yeah, you need to have a conscience and you need to really understand what's going on here. But the right thing is not to call a fetus part of the female's body. It's ignorant. Um, when it, when a child has a separate heartbeat, uh, a separate blood profile, a separate DNA, that's not the mother's body. That's a life inside the mother's body that the mother has the privilege and blessing of hosting. Um, so I think until we get that right, then we can't have the real important discussion that we really need to have, Bob, because this is all going to hinge in my mind in the future on the 14th Amendment. Because once we come to grips with the fact that fetus means, uh, essentially it's a Latin word that means offspring, <laughs> new life, right? Um, until we get that that is a separate life, then, then we're not going to be able to afford the child the 14th Amendment protection, uh, equal protection under the law, which is really uh, what should be happening. But kudos to the blade. My story is this. Uh, several well, hold on, hold on, Jack. Before you, before you get to your story, I don't disagree with you in the bigger picture, but the fact that despite them not saying we, you know, they, they didn't flip from being completely pro-choice to being completely pro-life and recognizing the inherent rights and the life of the offspring, as you correctly identify, um, w- w- you know, we can't ask for that. But what we did get here is a very, very pro-choice um, influential newspaper, one of the four biggest newspapers in the state of Ohio, uh, come down on the side of no on issue one, and I will take that. And and I hope yep. there are moderates and and others who maybe maybe are also pro-choice. You know, in in a liberal city like you know Toledo, the bigger cities all tend to be more liberal. I, I would hope that they and the other parts of Northwest Ohio that the blade reaches, if they're pro-choicers, that they also recognize, yeah, we're pro-choice, and we'll continue to fight against the heartbeat law, which we think is too much in their mind. Um, you know, too restrictive, but 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 this amendment and to put it into the Constitution where they can do this all the way up to the moment of birth and everything that goes with it is too extreme. I'll take it. I'll take what little yeah. movement I can get from a far left pro-choice publication. Um, you know, if they're willing to say no on issue one, man, I will hug them as a brother while this election goes on. Then I'll go back to bashing them because of their their original pro-choice stances. <laughs> Well, you know, special forces, uh, we've, we've learned uh, to put those folks in the front of our minds again because, you know, last week the Biden administration doxed some special forces yeah. folks, uh, in Israel. But uh, one, one, of the, uh, one of the things that the special forces folks will say is 70 percent accuracy and go. We'll negotiate the rest on the ground. To your point, mm-hmm. um, if they got it 70 percent right, we'll take it. That's a win. And, and I think that, by the way, if you're a conservative and, and you're a Republican, you got to get comfortable with 70 percent and go, because the reason that you get your butts kicked by Democrats is they take 70 percent and they acclimate around it and they come together as a block and move forward. Uh, and they don't infight and they don't kvetch about, you know, minor details that it could 
could cause the entire 70% to go away, if that makes sense. It does. Makes perfect sense. Great analogy. So tell me your Blade story. Well, um, <laughs> on the heels of that, uh, you, you remember me getting kicked out of Mike DeWine's pressers. Of and course. One, one of the legal ways that they tried to circumvent that, because we said, well, you know, why? Let's, let's talk. You know, we, we may file a lawsuit here. And they said, well, why don't you join the Ohio Legislative Correspondents Association? That's a group that was created by law that has a, you know, a right to be in the state house and, and cover events. Well, I went there and as you can imagine, um, I was received with open arms. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. So I had my quote interview with that group and, uh, they wanted to know, well, who funds you and, you know, how many stories do you write? So anyway, the guy from Toledo blade, uh, I believe his name's Jim, nice guy. But he said, you know, I would really like to see you uh, write more on state house stuff. Um, I don't, and I, and at that point, I just kind of stopped listening because I think I had I had personally published over a hundred stories <laughs> on state house affairs, um, and so I was just shocked that this guy representing the Toledo Blade was uh, in a leadership position on the Ohio Legislative Correspondents Association and was making a decision in in my mind with, without doing any of his homework. It was a very ignorant statement. Um, and, and it was a shame. So that's my Toledo Blade story was, you know, I'm here. I'm in the thick of it. Um, I have a preconceived notion, and I'm just going to go with that and not do my homework. So um, it appears on this case, though, they've done their homework. So good yeah. for them. Well, but you know what? I mean, it, what you just described, by the way, is typical of that publication. And like so many other left-wing publications, they don't do the homework. They just go based on their pre- preconceived biases, and, uh, and, they, and they write on that. They editorialize on that, and they treat people that way as well. And that's obviously what they did in that case. So it's this perfect example of, again, how bad they are, which makes their decision here so stunning. And, and quite frankly, it fills me with a little bit of optimism. I'm still pessimistic, I think, honestly, that we're going to win this thing. But my optimism is, is, or excuse me, my pessimism is decreased a little bit. I'm, I'm, I'm less pessimistic. I'm still not to the point where I think we're going to win. I think it's going to take right. a massive, massive attempt by a lot of people. As a matter of fact, Jack, um, I sent you these, uh, these clips um, you know, some good news, I guess, and tempered with some some bad, I suppose. But according to an article in the Cleveland.com and Plain Dealer uh, newspaper, um, far a fewer Ohioans have voted early so far. But from what uh, what we gather, more in the rural communities and less in the inner city communities, which would tend to think that's going to favor no on issue one more than it is the other side because of, you know, voting patterns and uh, and, and attitudes in the inner cities. So that's a good thing. And then in the other article here, of course, the plain dealer is accusing the issue one backers um I'm sorry, the anti-issue one backers, that's you and me, the no side of lying and misleading Ohioans about the existing Ohio abortion laws. I sit here and watch like you do every day uh, the no or excuse me, the yes on issue one ads. And and you do a great job online of calling them out of all of their lies. But now they're actually saying that we're the ones being dishonest. Yeah. So two parts there. Uh, First of all, it's interesting that fewer Ohioans have voted early. If you had said that suburban communities were the ones voting early, it might give me a little bit of heartburn because I think it's the it's suburban women who a lot of times, you know, whether we're talking about a key election or initiative like this, it, it might hinge on. Um, and, and I don't know what message they're buying. Um, but going to the point of the message, <laughs> it's pretty rich of Cleveland.com to claim 
that anti-issue uh, one backers are lying. Um, I'm going to encourage your listeners to keep their eyes peeled at, for the OhioPressNetwork.com story that will be out in the next 24 to 48 hours. And I'm going to dissect uh, an Associated Press article that conveniently, conveniently published the first day early voting was allowed in the state of Ohio. And it talked about misinformation. Uh, unfortunately, they highlighted misinformation from anti-issue one folks, while all the while completely bastardizing and half-truthing and blatant, straight-up lying about the lies that people who want you to vote yes are perpetrating in the press, on social media, and, of course, on TV and, and radio ads. So there are about seven or eight key points that we are going to dissect, and we're going to clear it all up. And by the way, the Cleveland.com article is really interesting. Um, they talk about uh, a lot about the heartbeat issue, mm-hmm. how it's on pause, and mm-hmm. how people are not really admitting that it's only on pause. They're saying it's 22 weeks. Well, but even Cleveland.com is missing the whole issue. And here's the real issue, Bob. There's a difference between a constitutional amendment and an Ohio Revised Code law. We ought to be figuring this out through the Ohio Revised Code, not enshrining something so radical that legitimately 80 percent of all voters oppose. They just don't realize they oppose it because they're being lied to. The real issue is we should be figuring this out in, in a law, in a statute, not a constitutional amendment. But, of course, Cleveland.com won't go there. Well, of course not. And and to be fair, you know, that's the whole reason the amendment exists, because they know they cannot win when it comes to the Ohio Revised Code. That goes through the legislature, and then they bitch and complain, excuse me, they complain that the— uh, <laughs> That the uh, uh, legislature is gerrymandered, that the General Assembly is all Republican and they're never going to be able to get a fair shake there, which is why they went to the direct uh, democracy, you know, uh, way of going to the Constitution. And that's their argument. Yeah, gerrymandering is, a, is a, I don't know, another way to say loser, I guess. Um, if Democrats want to do better, they should win elections. And exactly. they should win elections by telling the truth. And unfortunately, you get things like this. But listen, uh, Governor Mike DeWine has said, I think there's some ability or, or expectation that that Republicans and he would negotiate a little bit on this heartbeat bill. Um, I think that he's willing to lobby for some sort of, hey, if we need to push the needle forward on this or if we need to make sure that we have explicit exceptions for rape and incest. Right. Um, th- because, by the way, those are the big talking points. So I think if you're a Mike DeWine or someone that's trying to be pragmatic, you're going, all right, how do we defang these, you know, these vipers. How do we take away the big talking points? Mm-hmm. Well, there you go. Let's put an exception in there for rape and incest, and then there's absolutely no need for this constitutional amendment. Yeah, very, very well said. And uh, and you know, to me, what what I yes, it's on pause because it's in the courts talking about the uh, the heartbeat bill, which became the heartbeat law, but now has of course been enjoined. Um, I get so tired of the argument, and this will be the last point on this if you want to react to it, of, well, most women don't even know they're pregnant by six weeks. If you are having unprotected sex, take a pregnancy test. It's just that simple, and you have six weeks to do it. If you get in a hookup situation, or, and we also have to say they get mad because there's no exceptions for rape and incest. If a child or a teen or, or a woman, doesn't matter, if it's, a, if it's an unplanned situation, either by a, a brutal act of force or an incestuous situation, or if you're just out doing the one-night stand thing, and, 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 and an incident like that does take place, you have six weeks 
to take a pregnancy test and find out. And then you can indeed terminate that pregnancy before that child develops a heart and now has a body that is uh, can be confirmed as its own unique life force that deserves the protections that all you know citizens do in the United States of America. Well said. I mean, look, we've we've got to stop allowing people to pass go and collect two hundred dollars, so to speak. And you just did that. Uh, we have to stop acting like pregnancies are immaculate conceptions, and that the woman is just confused about how the baby got in, in her belly. Uh, <laughs> you're right. If you have if you have intercourse, you have the responsibility to make sure you're doing the things that abide by the law. If you if you have been raped, if it is an incestuous situation, then you know that that's happened, and 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 you can start the process of making sure that you know if your preference is to abort the child, that you do that. Um, so we really have to put responsibility on people who are making decisions. Now, certainly, I do have a special place in my heart for people who have you know uh, been victims of rape or incest. Uh, that's an awful thing, and of course, we want to make sure that we're. Um, making exceptions. But the other thing we have to be careful of, Bob, and I know we're low on time, so I'll be quick here. There, There is a, a psychological and emotional and a spiritual impact that I think we don't talk about sometimes, and we need to do that. Um, abortions have consequences, even if even if the press doesn't want to tell you, it, it impacts women. And um, so we need to make sure that we're looking holistically at the impact of all decisions relating to abortion, uh, including rape and incest. Very, very well said. We're talking to Jack Windsor, the editor-in-chief and the founder of the Ohio Press Network. Jack, last subject for you here, and we've got a few minutes. Okay. Um, I want to ask you about the ODEW. You and I have talked about this. I know you've been covering yeah. it. That's the Ohio Department of Education and Workforce, yeah. you know, the attempt to strip away uh, the powers, essentially, to make decisions for Ohio schools from the Board of Education and give it to an unelected appointee by the governor. Now, many of us who are conservative-minded um, are kind of happy because, you know what, if i got a Republican governor who can appoint somebody, it's better than the left-wing board that, uh, you know, the majority of the board, you know, that is, you know, pushing indoctrination on Ohio schools. But as you know, once there's a Democrat governor, then they get to appoint a radical leftist right. indoctrinator to that unelected position. So it's a real problem. Um, they just had a meeting, an, o, uh, an ODE, uh, or excuse me, OBE meeting in which 11 of the 18 or 19 members showed up. Um, and there's, and I'm going to have John Hagen, who's a member of that board, on a little bit later this morning. But I wanted to kind of get uh, the the pulse of it from your understanding of where this yeah. where this sits right now. Well, I think if there was ever uh, three things, if there was ever a doubt about the penchant of the Ohio Department of Education and the state board, uh, I think that it's all coming out right now. Uh, I think that this lawsuit shows a lot. We'll talk in just a second about a second lawsuit. Uh, But the Department of Education and Workforce is now able to move forward. A judge in Franklin County on Friday said um, that essentially the, the folks who filed the lawsuit to stop it and they were and they don't want to call themselves Democrats, but Democrats on the State Board of Education filed a lawsuit. And essentially, the judge said, you don't have standing, right? Because you're, you're, you're saying that this change is going to cause confusion and chaos, okay? but there's real, it's, this is not right for, for adjudication, essentially. So the Department of Education and Workforce is now able to move forward. But there's another lawsuit. The same people who wanted to stop the, the implementation of the Department of Education and Workforce um, are, are suing uh, with a company called Reading Recovery. Now, Reading Recovery is the company that for two or three decades now has been, quote, teaching kids how to read. Unfortunately, um, a lot of the science behind what they're promoting has been debunked. 
And so there is a phonics, you know, scientific approach that Ohio is starting to implement. And reading recovery is going, no, you can't implement that. Why are they doing that? Because they have intellectual property and a business model and revenue that they're trying to protect. And they have the Ohio Department of Education and uh, state board members. Uh, Antoinette Miranda, for example, is on the board uh, at Reading Recovery, and she's also a school board, uh, state school board member. So um, I think it's really telling. That's a lawsuit that I'll be interested to see how it, how it shakes out. But as of right now, DEW is a go. And um, do you think ultimately it should be? You know, Bob, it, we elect representatives. That's how a representative republic works. And the representatives, as part of a omnibus bill, the budget, passed the change and funded the change. So as a law-abiding citizen, I think it has to work. I have the same heartburn you do, though. When we have somebody like a Tim Ryan in that governor's chair or a Skinner in that governor's chair, and you have you know a radical purple-haired person leading the DEW, um, that could spell disaster. Yeah, I completely agree, because I think that's eventually what's going to happen. Purple haired, nose ring, gauge wearing and uh, pride flag waving. And uh, we're going to indoctrinate every kid into picking new pronouns. And I'm afraid that that unelected person will have no fear whatsoever uh, to implement all of that radicalism in the schools. Uh, at least the Board of Education members, if they cast votes on those kinds of things, can be you know removed by the people. So. Uh, that's uh, that's the reality of it. All right, Jack Windsor, as I expected you would, great job. Thank you for the Thank analysis you. of everything from issue one all the way through. Uh, look forward to talking to you again soon. Thanks, Bob. That's Jack Windsor, Ohio Press Network. Make sure you subscribe to theohiopressnetwork.com, theohiopressnetwork.com. We'll be back. Great stuff with our friend Jack Windsor and great stuff coming, as you know, because it's Tuesday. And after the top of the hour news, we're going to have a conversation with our good friend Peter Kersenow. Kersenow wrote an article uh, that uh, ran in the National Review, the coming terrorist attack on U.S. soil. And as you know, if it comes from Pete, it's uh, it's well researched and well presented. I'm going to share some of that with you when we bring him in and then we'll let him explain in much more depth. There is no question that there is a terrorist attack coming here to our homeland. We talk about this on a regular basis, the need for actual security of the homeland, and it's being completely ignored. I told you yesterday, feds are saying that Hamas and Hezbollah terrorists are absolutely on their way into the United States right now by way of our southern border. Kurtz and I will address that and more coming up right here on Always Right Radio. Cleveland, a service of Salem Media Group, broadcasting from the Discount Drug Mart Studios. Proud to be celebrating over 50 years as your hometown. News this hour from townhall.com. I'm Rich Thomason. Ahead of an expected ground offensive, Israel has stepped up its aerial assault on what it has identified as terrorist targets in Gaza. There have also been airstrikes on Hezbollah bases in southern Lebanon. The Biden administration wants to ensure safe passage for people out of Gaza, and that includes U.S. citizens. 
President Biden has offered full-throated support for Israel's right to defend itself and target Hamas. And he also wants to make it possible for Americans and others to leave Gaza. We still want to see safe passage out, and particularly for the several hundred American citizens that we know are in Gaza and want to leave. The National Security Council's John Kirby says U.S. and Israeli officials have had frank discussions about Israel's pending Gaza ground invasion. Greg Clugston. Washington. Senator Roger Marshall and nine of his Republican colleagues demanding that any additional Israel aid be separated from more money for Ukraine. President Biden is requesting roughly $105 billion for Israel, Ukraine and Gaza, all in a single package. The Georgia Supreme Court has rejected a lower court ruling that declared the state's abortion law invalid. It leaves a so-called heartbeat law in effect, at least for now. House Republicans plan another internal vote today, trying to come up with a new nominee for Speaker. During a closed-door candidate forum Monday evening, House Republicans heard from the nine lawmakers initially vying to be the next Speaker of the House. One dropped out before the forum was over. House Republicans are expected to vote Tuesday to narrow the list further. The House has been in a state of paralysis since October 3rd when eight GOP lawmakers sided with Democrats to remove then-Speaker Kevin McCarthy. Correspondent Edwin Mora. Following yesterday's losses, this morning, stocks flying high on Wall Street. The Dow's up 258 points. The Nasdaq ahead 115 points. More on these stories at townhall.com. Donald Trump's indictment proves that saving America is not going to be easy. There are entrenched powers that are fighting this with everything they've got. They want to keep control over the country, the narrative, and the nation's money supply. Hi, I'm Lance Wall now. I'm a news analyst, a Christian author, and evangelical leader. I speak to millions of people every week, people just like you. You see, what the elites are doing is using inflation and government handouts and now central bank digital currencies to determine how they're going to control America. And that's why I recommend all Christians start a gold IRA from the Birch Gold Group, because physical precious metals are one of the few ways you can maintain control over your own savings. To get a free info kit on gold IRAs, text the word FAITH to 989898. Birch Gold Group is the only gold company I trust. Get their free info kit and you'll see why a gold IRA can help you. There are no strings attached. Text the word FAITH to 989898 and you're going to be blessed by taking action right now. An inquiry into New Zealand's worst mass shooting will examine, among other issues, the response times of police and medics and whether any of the 51 people who were killed might have been saved. March the 15th, 2019, was one of New Zealand's darkest days. A long-awaited inquest aims to establish a full picture of the Christchurch mosque attacks. Could any of the victims have been saved with faster medical treatment? And did the attacker act alone? The coroner will also consider if the white supremacist gunman was radicalized online. Part of Brenton Tarrant's attack was live-streamed on Facebook. The BBC's Phil Mercer. South Korean officials say four suspected North Korean defectors have been found in a small wooden boat near the two Korea's sea border. Defections by North Korea... You and I have a rendezvous with destiny. We'll preserve for our children this, the last best hope of man on earth, or we'll sentence them to take the last step into a thousand years of darkness. darkness. This is Always Right Radio on AM 1420. The answer is your host, Bob France. 
All right, seven minutes after the hour of 10 o'clock on this Tuesday, the 24th morning of the 10th month in the year of our Lord, 2023. Thanks again to Jack Windsor. If you missed that interview, it'll be posted along with the rest of the show. Uh, After the show, about an hour after the show, you can uh, catch anything you miss at uh, uh, whkradio.com, whkradio.com. So I told you earlier this week, well, I guess that would have been yesterday, and I think toward the end of last week, but... um, The San Diego Field Office Intelligence Unit of the Division of Customs and Border Protection assesses that individuals inspired by or reacting to the current Israel-Hamas conflict may attempt to travel to or from the area of hostilities in the Middle East via circuitous transit across the southwest border. Foreign fighters motivated by ideology or mercenary soldiers of fortune may attempt to obfuscate travel to or from the U.S., to or from countries in the Middle East, through Mexico. That was a report from the Daily Caller obtained by that San Diego Field Office Intelligence Division of CBP, telling you that terrorists are on their way into the country. And that is probably why Peter Kirsten now wrote for National Review an article headlined, The Coming Terrorist Attack on U.S. soil. This is not fear-mongering. This is not hyperbole. This is not uh, melodramatic intent to drive viewership or readers or clicks. This is a legitimate threat. So if you have not been interested enough in what's going on in Israel, this is going to make you much more interested in Israel's problems coming here to the homeland. Let's welcome our good friend, Peter Kersenow, back to our program. Peter Kersenow is a member of the United States Commission on Civil Rights, He is also a Cleveland attorney, and as I just pointed out, in addition to being a best-selling author, he is a phenomenal columnist who's got a better grasp of most world events than most people do. Peter, good morning. Good to have you back, my friend. How are you? You know, I'm doing pretty well. Beautiful day in Cleveland. Um, You know, I love this time of year. It's uh, football, great weather, and um, unfortunately, you know, it's dampened by the fact that we've got almost everything <laughs> in this country seems to be going downhill. You name the category and it's going downhill. And, it is. Uh, you know, uh, as our friend Larry has to say, we've got a country to save, so we got we got to work hard at reversing this. It's funny you said that. I'm inter- interviewing him at 2 o'clock today for my TV show, which, uh, which tell launches me, tomorrow. Tell him I said he's a bum. Tell him <laughs> I said he's a bum. I'll get that in. I will absolutely get that in. Seth, remind me to tell Larry that. Uh, okay, Pete, so let's let's dive into this. Even before I read your column, which I did not know about until this morning, um, or your article, I should say, on the coming terrorist attack. I did know the story that I just shared with you. Um, this was uh, run by the Blaze yesterday by way of the Daily Caller that uh, CBP, Customs and Border Protection, in San Diego, they are reporting uh, that there's no question about it that terrorists are coming here. This isn't new for many of us who have been watching this and know some of the numbers that you wrote about, but this should bring it home to people. Are we going to need to have a Hamas-style attack that we just saw on October 7th in Israel happen in the United States for us to wake up? Or when, and when I say us, of course, I mean Joe Biden and the Biden administration, the Department of Homeland Security, et cetera, before anything is done. Go ahead. Yeah, it's bewildering to me that the Biden administration, in the midst of so many, I mean, multiple hazards that present themselves to the United States, um, has the worst border enforcement in the history of the country. And they revel in it. They delight in it. They they actively try to tie the hands of Customs and Border Patrol. If you talk to the agents, we, uh, by the way, if 
few years ago, we had a, a hearing on this in the Civil Rights Commission, not on terrorism specifically, but things that were going on in the border. And um, what I found was the Customs and Border Patrol agents, the rank-and-file guys, were some of the best around. They wanted to do their job. They were diligent. They were enormously frustrated by the fact that uh, not just the Biden administration, you know, let's put an exception for Trump. Uh, Trump tried to secure the border. There's no doubt about that. And they will tell you that. But uh, almost every American administration for the last 40 years has tied the hands of Customs and Border Patrol. That's one thing. So we have millions of people coming across the border, literally millions of people. Now, what Customs and Border, Customs and Border Patrol will tell you is that uh, their figures show that about roughly 2.5 million people have crossed the border every year since uh, the Biden administration began. 2.5 million. Just think about that. It's, it's extraordinary. They have apprehended untold numbers of people who are on the terror watch list, mm -hmm. as I say in my article. These are the folks who've actually made the list. You, you've got to do something pretty remarkable to make that list, and those are the ones that they apprehended. Now, remember, of the 2.5 million that we know of that they've encountered every year, um, at least half of the well, we'll put it this way. That's, that represents only half of those who've actually gotten across the border but have not been encountered. So there are two and a half million people who they don't even know anything about. They got away. They're, they're nowhere to be seen. And those are likely the, the folks we need to be most concerned about because terrorists, you know, have a, they've got a unique and special incentive to avoid capture as opposed to a lot of the folks crossing the border who understand because of you know, social media, the Biden administration itself, telling them that once they get into the United States, boom, that's it. They're home free. They'll get a little ticket that says, hey, please report to court in 2030 and uh, be on your way. And sometimes the Biden administration will even favor you by giving you a bus ticket and a plane ticket and take you wherever you want to go and just depositing you there. So those folks present themselves to Border Patrol knowing that, hey, they're going to be taken care of. Terrorists, on the other hand, are potential terrorists. Those on the terror watch list, they're not going to do that. So they're going to be trying to avoid Border Patrol and are probably fairly successful in doing so. Those numbers are probably understated, which means we have got a titanic problem on our hands. And the real question is, when is it going to manifest itself and in what fashion? And, um, you know, I'm sure there are a lot of folks, rank and file people in Homeland Security. I, I used to know a few of them who stay awake at night thinking about these things, who analyze these things, but the policymakers above them under this administration are asleep at the switch. They're not enforcing these things at all. I mean, that's just the opposite. It's almost as if they are facilitating the conditions that would allow terrorists to operate with impunity in the United States of America. As I say in the article, remember, and everybody knows this, Israel is get, gets hit all the time because it's in the worst neighborhood in the world. Um, and uh, they are a, a special target, but they're the little Satan. We are the great Satan. Mm -hmm. We are the ultimate target for terrorists. And the Biden administration seems, you know, oblivious to it. It seems like they really don't care. They will defend almost anything except for the United States of America and its people. So it's a concern. Do I do I expect it to happen? I, I mean, I think the probabilities are, are extraordinarily high that it will. I'm hopeful that it won't, because I live in this country as we do, but I think the alarm bells need to be raised. And it, I hope that more people in Congress would just act like their hair is on fire and, you know, just raise holy you-know-what 
try to get this out into the media. We're focused, deservedly so, on what's happening in Israel. And even there, I think many of our policymakers have been acting if negligently, if not despicably. Um, but nonetheless, we have serious problems here at home. We are not a hardened country like Israel is. Um, or even some other nations are. Uh, Germany's probably harder, uh, better hardened than we are. Um, but we have so many. Um, I mean, think of the worst case scenario. You know, when I write my novels, I always try to think of, okay, what's the worst, most vile thing that can happen? And believe me, the bad guys are thinking in those terms. They sit around and discuss what is the thing that will capture the most attention. What is the most devastating thing we could do to the United States of America? first thing I think about, and I'm not giving anybody any ideas because they've thought about this 15,000 times over, is hitting schools, uh, hitting hospitals, hitting things that are really, uh, you know, they're not hardened and the tragedy would be unspeakable. So uh, I'm not sure. I don't know what it will take. We had a 9-11. Only 19 people were responsible for, only 19 people were responsible for the deaths of 3,000 Americans. And we have just let in the last year, bare minimum, Two and a half million people across the border. We have no clue who they are. Well, all of that is uh, exactly correct. And, um, you know, Pete, you, you wrote in the article that the consequences of the Biden administration's blatantly impeachable refusal to secure the yeah. border will re- reverberate for decades. It is impeachable, but he's not going to get impeached. We know that. What I want to know is. What, why won't his fellow Democrats impress upon him the importance of not getting Americans killed? It's one thing to say we want to import more foreign nationals, as many as we can, eventually to give them amnesty and make them voters and so on and so forth, and they'll thank us. We all know the, the, the goal there. Is it going to take piles of dead American bodies like we saw in Israel for them to say, you know, look, Mr. President, there's there's got to be something that we do here uh, that that protects the homeland because I've I've heard or read multiple national security analysts say that right now the United States is more vulnerable to a terrorist attack on our homeland than we were before nine eleven, not after but before nine eleven because after nine eleven obviously some steps were taken and some things were put into place that really might even you know be constitutionally questionable, but there were steps taken to you know shore up security. But we are now in a pre-9-11 place, in fact, where we're actually more vulnerable now than we were then, Pete. Yeah. I, I don't know if that's true. I mean, I, I will rely on the experts. And I've had, you know, heard testimony from some of the experts who say something similar to what you've just said, and I'll take them at their word. Uh, as a layperson, I would think that we're at least as vulnerable because we're starting to fall asleep at the switch again. And I'm not talking about the people whose hair is on fire every single day of the week because it's their job to monitor these things. I'm talking about the average American. Yeah. And I think to, to answer your first question with respect to why, are they, why, is, why do the Democrats allow Biden to do this, I think there are a lot of folks who are, have, share our concerns. But there is a political imperative there. This really tells you how much a significant segment of the Democratic Party is, uh, you know, a part of ideological capture by the hard left. You look at the squad, for example, Tlaib and, and Cortez. They act as if America is the enemy. 
I'm not exactly. Well, I, I know about them, yeah, though. I, I, I know about them, and we all know about them. But not every yeah. Democrat in the Senate or in the House is a radical leftist, you know, like that. That's true. Um, I'm and, wondering when the moderate Democrats, the ones who actually do care about national security, because there are a handful that do, are, are they going to be willing to speak about this? Or is it all about party unity and we're not going to question anything that Dear Leader does? Yeah, I think those folks, and again, I, I, you know, you and I both watch our share of the news, and I think we have a fairly good handle on which mm-hmm. Democrats would be inclined to say something like that. And yeah. I haven't heard enough of that. You know, you hear a little bit in the context of Israel, but very little. And I think, again, it's a part of an ideological capture that the, the major donors and a significant part of the voter base for the Democratic Party is opposed. They, you know, they're, I, I hate to say this, but the way we would view it is anti-American. That's that's the way we would, uh, whether they believe it or not, they may think that they have some higher ideal that the way that America should be, this is how they act. But nonetheless, I think that a lot of um, low congressional uh, Democrats out there, those who don't have the big names and the big titles and the big chairmanships, they rely on uh, the goodwill of certain donors, and Democrats rely more on mega donors than the Republicans do, and they don't want to get uh, excoriated by the MSNBCs, the CNNs, and all the other little publications and their fellow Democrats. So I think they keep their heads down, stay quiet. But I've been in, in, civil, I've been in civil rights commission hearings and I've been at congressional hearings where you have ordinary Democrats, the kind, the kind of Democrats you typically see in Cleveland, Ohio, you know, not the, the, the strict ideologues. And they're as concerned as anybody else is. Uh, but maybe that is a, 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 a you know, a a bad mark in their favor. If they're concerned, well, if they're... you would think they, they would be screaming their heads off because they want to protect their own families, their own country. But we are in dire straits right now. If they're, worried about, be... if they're worried about their electability or re-electability, Peter, um, I, I wonder how they think yeah. how, how, how they think it's going to go with the voters if we have an attack on their watch. If there is a terror attack, as you write about in this article, and many are predicting... Um, how electable they're going to be then when they're the ones who refused to seal the border. Peter Kirsch now continues with us right after this. All right, we continue now on Always Right Radio, AM 1420, The Answer, 26 minutes. Short segment here before the bottom, but it's okay. We have Kirstenau for another long one after that. So, Peter Kirstenau, um, let's come back to now the home uh, base here uh, and, and look at what's happening in our universities and our colleges. You and I talked in much depth about this last week, about the radicalization of students uh, at our uh, some of our elite universities. Quite frankly, at a lot of just the normal state universities as well, but... We talked about whether or not there should be a find-out phase. Uh, we all know the uh, popular phrase, blank around, find out. Um, <laughs> they blanked around, and now they're finding out. Um, I've got an article, a couple of articles in front of me, one in the Epic Times. Conservatives see fundamental shift occurring as radicalized universities exposed after students support Hamas. And it's featuring a number of prominent CEOs and influential law firms that have, A, pledged not to hire pro-Hamas students who blame Israel for the carnage of October 7th, but some uh, uh, firms that have already made job offers and have revoked them, have pulled them back and said, nope, we don't want you anymore. Uh, the The job offer is rescinded. Pete, is this the right course for, uh, for corporations and firms to take? You know, uh, I get... 
I hate to say this, but I get a, a certain amount of satisfaction in, 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 in that happening. And, and I'll tell you why. Uh, you know, I had a number of debates about this with, with folks, and uh, my view is that these individuals who are 22, 23, 24, 25 years old, they're adults. Uh, folks younger than them are overseas, many of them in harm's way. They put their lives on the line every single day of the week. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, your actions and words have consequences. But a lot of the folks, and, you know, I am not don't want to paint a broad brush, but you saw them on television. There were significant segments of the student populations of a variety of universities, mainly in the Ivy League. At least those were the ones that were being depicted. I know my alma mater was one of them and Harvard was one of them where these students think they can act with impunity, where it's a sign of virtue signaling. They get along with their other folks to show how how wonderful they are and how progressive they are. And they say fundamentally stupid and sometimes vile and evil things. And you know what? Those things have consequences. Um, Among other things, uh, I think there are a lot of folks that don't want to have people who share those kinds of sentiments uh, working for them. Uh, And then aside from that, aside from the substance of it, there's the whole issue of judgment. Um, Somebody who, for example, says death to Israel, uh, juxtaposed right next to this horrific, horrific terrorist attack, uh, when you say something like that, you should know. Let's put substance aside. Let's put uh, morals aside for a second. Uh, Just the raw calculation. If you're too stupid to understand that within a few days of such a horrific act occurring, you at least appear to be taking the side of the terrorists, well, there's, there's going to be consequences for that. And the fact is that the, the nature of that terrorist attack was so vile, so despicable, that if you come out and say, you don't say you support Hamas, but if you come out and say things such as, and this is what a lot of them were saying, uh, there was the one professor at Cornell who said he was exhilarated by what happened. And then there are other students who, you know, tearing down Israel posters and others who were generally favoring it, you know, and all these things. Well, it appears as if, regardless of your sentiments that you're saying you're in favor of the Palestinians, not Hamas, when you come out after such a vile act, there's no way in the world anybody with a brain would ever come out after something like that and say that they support somebody, you know, the, the Palestinians, unless Deep in their hearts, it appears as if they liked the, what happened, that they well, yeah. supported the terrorists. If, 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 let's, let's clarify this, Pete, and we've got to take our break here, but let's clarify this. Anybody who is chanting free Palestine, free Palestine, free, uh, free Palestine, they are also chanting without saying the words death to Israel, because you cannot have Palestine yep. without Israel. Yep. They, they believe that the Israel land and territory is theirs and that it's Palestinian land. So when they say free Palestine, that means kill Israel and kill Jews, and it should not yep. be taken with any ambiguity. That is their direct message, whether they're saying it out loud or not. We'll pick right. this up. And, and uh, you don't have to be a student of history to understand how horrific that is, not just to, to Jews, but to anybody with a brain. That's right. And you also don't have to be a student of history to know that there is no such thing as Palestine on any map anywhere and never has been. But they don't want yeah, you to know that either. for a long time. <laughs> That's right. All right. We'll continue with Kirsten all right after this. Waking up America from its woke slumber. Always right radio with Bob France on The Answer. 
All right, it is uh, 35 minutes past 10 o'clock, and we do continue now with Peter Kersenow talking a little bit about a little bit about education or the what used to be education at America's higher institutions of higher learning, and now it is, of course, full-on indoctrination. Um, there are radicalized students all over this country from one end to the other being urged and pushed and egged on by radical uh, leftist professors and, in some cases, administrators. And uh, it's costing them in their careers, as it should. You know, it's funny, Pete. Conservatives have been traditionally, and by traditionally, I mean in the last several years of what has become cancel culture, we're the ones who generally feel the pain because it's the left canceling us. Now they're starting to find out what it looks like and what it smells like when you chant free Palestine and from the river to the sea, river to the sea, you know, and and all of these things, which means wipe out Israel and give what they believe is colonized land by Jews to Palestinians, as they like to call themselves. They're finding out when you do those things, it's costing you. You're canceling yourself. And there's some, some small... Uh, degree of schadenfreude that I get from this because they're the ones who believe in cancel culture and uh, now they're finding out when they do these things there are real world consequences uh, that they should have to face. Yeah, and uh, you know I I hate to see negative consequences befall anybody um, who doesn't engage in you know violent acts or something that is criminal but this is one of those things that is so horrific, so beyond the pale, that if, and it's a minor thing, let's face it, you say something as vile as uh, death to Israel, especially in the context of what just transpired, as if you are countenancing or supporting the decapitation of babies, I mean, it's so horrific, well, you know, there are going to be consequences to it, so you don't get a job. And it's not as bad as... But they don't even have to say it, Pete, in my view. They don't even have to say death to Israel, excuse me, which is, of course, beyond the pale. All they have to do is try to justify and create a moral equivalence for right. between between what Israel is doing and, and, and has done and what Hamas just did to them. If anybody who tries to do that to me, um, I think is deserving of any every bit of um, you know blacklisting or, or, or consequential actions that are taken against them going forward. Anybody who doesn't say in unanimity, this is wrong, the beheading of babies, and I don't know if you saw the interview or any of the transcriptions of the interviews with the... Um, Hamas terrorist who confessed essentially under interrogation, they were all urged to do everything as graphically mm-hmm. as they can, cut off heads, cut off feet, burn bodies, do everything you can because they wanted to send a message to the rest of the world that this is, you know, this is their new Holocaust. Uh, and they, they essentially admitted that during um, uh, interrogations. And, and Pete, if you can't say unequivocally that is barbaric and wrong and we condemn it, then you... Again, you should you should endure those consequences, whatever they may be. There are certain things that transpire in life, I, I like to say, that make it easier to spot the idiots. And it's also certain things make it easier to spot the amoral or immoral. And this is one of those things. When you are able to witness, and we saw it. I mean, we saw the consequences of what happened back on October 7th. And then you're able to, you know, go out there and chant not just death to Israel, but uh, it, it, the type of statements that were made were were mind-boggling, but it reveals again the poisonous atmosphere in so many of our universities, and that's just one aspect of our universities. But there are other things too. But at the universities, especially, it was so stark and manifest right after October seventh, 
And we've been saying, you and I, Bob, and lots of other people have been saying how corrupt our universities have become. We're not teaching anybody anything. They're coming out and they're, the, the students aren't learning anything. They're, they, they're not thinking. Uh, but they're being, and we're ridiculed for saying this, but they're being indoctrinated. And we are seeing the wages of that. We're seeing it with our own eyes now that they are, in fact, being indoctrinated because it's very difficult to believe that all these students that went to Harvard and Cornell and Columbia University of Pennsylvania, all these students were taught this by their parents and then, uh, you know, just happened to exhibit it when they went to university. Uh, you know, some learned it from their parents maybe or from, you know, friends of theirs, but the university culture is one that is so toxic at this time. These kinds of, and it, it's not simply limited to, and I don't mean simply in, in a derogative sense, but it's not only limited to what's happening in Israel and to anti-Semitism, yeah. but all the things you and I have been discussing over the years, Bob, the, these um, anti-Western ideologues who have poisoned the minds of so many kids. We're seeing this generation, if there's a poll that came out, I don't have it in front of me, but it broke down... Uh, by age group, um, the extent to which people, you know, found, were, were repulsed by what happened, and to the extent people held anti-Semitic sentiments. And strangely enough, not, it even surprised me, even though I've, we've had hearings of anti-Semitism at the Civil Rights Commission, the younger the cohort, between 18 to 24, it was something like 68% mm. of, the, of the students had anti-Semitic views, and it went down from there so that wow. when you got to about 45 to 49, I think it was, you know, 25 percent, which is still too much. But it was among the youngest cohort, anywhere from 18 to about 30, that more than 50 percent held starkly anti-Semitic views or justified or could justify well, it, what transpired it can't, in Israel. It can't be, you know, coincidental that these people have no idea about, you know, the Holocaust, for example. They don't know about yeah. the history of anti-Semitism worldwide, and they don't know, of course, about the attempt to exterminate the Jewish race from the face of the planet uh, that was done because they're not being taught history. They're not being taught real-world history in these schools uh, because, obviously, they have an agenda. Their indoctrination of Marxist theory and so forth is, prevents them from getting actual education. And in fact, Pete, I want to use that as a dovetail into this. Um, what's more reckless and more dangerous, college students who are blindly indoctrinated or are college students who are just too stupid to be there anyway, but they're there because of this. Blue State suspends basic skills graduation requirement again, citing harm to students of color. High schoolers at Oregon, this is not unique to Oregon. This is just the latest. Right. This is happening right. in districts, sometimes district-wide, county-wide, and sometimes statewide. This is happening everywhere. Quote, high schoolers in Oregon won't need to demonstrate basic competency. I, I, I just can't. I can't with this, Pete. We're not even talking about an expert level where you have to be yeah. advanced. Basic competency in reading, writing, or mathematics in order to graduate for at least five more years because, according to education officials, such requirements are unnecessary and disproportionately harm students of color. At some point, our diploma is going to end up looking like a lot more like a participation prize than an actual certificate that shows someone is actually prepared to pursue their best future, said former Oregon gubernatorial candidate Christine Drazen uh, to Fox News. Peter, this again is not unique to Oregon, but this is the mentality 
And, and it's gotten worse since George Floyd died. Every vi- uh, uh, person of color is a victim because George Floyd died. It's now legal to steal. It's now legal to do uh, commit a, a host of crimes without fear of policing, prosecution, or incarceration. Uh, and now it's, of course, uh, completely permissible to not know how to read or write and get your diploma because to ask for you to be able to read and write to get that diploma is unfair and it's inequitable to people of color. And these are the kids then who get their degrees and go on to college campuses, Pete? Yeah, um, the ultimate result is there's not much daylight between the policies of the pre-Civil War South when it came to blacks. You couldn't teach them to read or write or anything like that. Oh, good what's point. happening in blue straits, you know? There's really no, not much difference. And I could go into more historical detail there. I mean, you know, obviously we don't have slavery right now, but the bottom line here is there's a hamstringing of blacks that's unforgivable. And Unfortunately, too many black adults are going along with it. Not, I'll tell you, there's a lot of opposition to it. There's no doubt about that. But people in the political sphere, uh, those folks are going along with it. <clears throat> They're demanding you know, it. I've said, I, I've said on your show a number of times, Bob, that um, I'm an old man now, and to the extent I've been discriminated against in my life or racist statements being made or anything like that, to the extent I knew who the person was or anything about the person, it was almost universally made by folks on the left, without question. And most of the time it came in kind of soft discrimination, such as some type of patronization or condescension or you know, consigning uh, you know, me to failure or others. And, and that's what the left is. That's the new face of racism that you see right now. And that's what hap- is happening in Oregon, California, and other places where black students aren't being held to the same standard. Because let's face it, uh, their white uh, uh, progressive patrons don't think that they can cut it. They don't, that, that's the most racist of all approaches. And if, even if the approach itself was well-meaning, and there are people who are well-meaning but just misguided who would implement such an approach, the effect is one of racism. It consigns blacks to the other, to a different standard. And I think it's just the worst thing imaginable. Um, I know a lot of black parents object to that, but apparently not enough to get the uh, progressives to change their direction. It is horrible what's happening because these folks are going to be unemployable. And then, but but understand this, and you know, this is like pro tip from 20 plus years on the Civil Rights Commission. I've seen these guys and what they're up to up close and personal. The political imperative here is one that's a lot more sinister, and that is if you keep blacks and other minorities um, in a, you know, kind of a uh, non-competitive position, they depend a lot more on the government and on patronizing Democrats uh, or at least believe they need to depend on them for sustenance, for survival. And they will give their votes to Democrats. And Democrats would, would like to say, oh, you know, we're doing great things for you. You see, we're fighting against racism, when in fact the ultimate result of all this patronization and condescension is to hamstring, Harms to them. really yep. harm the prospects of blacks, Hispanics, and anybody else to whom the uh, Democratic Party condescends and tries to keep on the Democratic plantation. I think more and more people are wising up to that. I wish it was happening faster. I've been doing this for decades now, and it's not happening with the degree of alacrity I'd like to see. But I think from time to time, the Democrats slash progressives overplay their hand. And you're seeing now in polling data, for example, uh, greater numbers of blacks that are at least open to voting Republicans, greater numbers of blacks that are disgusted with, with Democrats, and it's happening faster <clears throat> among Hispanics. And 
there has also been some polling just recently I saw where Jews who are traditionally more inclined to vote for Democrats are now rethinking their proposition. Um, you know, reality has a way of intruding in unpleasant ways. And when you start to see Baltimore City Schools, as an example, where there are 13 schools where nobody, zero, zero pupils were competent in math, nobody, when you start to see that after 40, 50, 60 in Detroit, 80 years of unbroken Democratic rule, after a while, you know, it starts to register. You know, After a while, people start to get the idea that maybe it's not such a good idea to keep doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result, meaning voting for Democrats and hewing to Democratic policies. They've been an abject failure for blacks. Trillions of dollars, trillions poured into the black community. Uh, but what it's really been is an effort to buy votes because it's not improved a lot of blacks proportionately. Now, uh, 100% correct, and uh, and no one seems to care. And since I brought up the George Floyd thing, I've been saying this about almost everything that has happened in the last three years. Because George Floyd died, this happened, even though they're, they're seemingly unrelated. But they're not. They're all related. And now we should bring this up. Tucker Carlson, uh, in his program on Friday that he does on Twitter, and I know you don't see that because you don't have Twitter, but Tucker Carlson did a deep dive into the George Floyd story based on a conversation. I'm going to quote some of this for you here, Pete, since I know you didn't see it. Carlson revealed that in a deposition in a case unrelated to Floyd or Derek Chauvin, who was, of course, convicted for Floyd's murder, a prosecutor recalled a conversation she had with a county medical examiner, examiner, Andrew Baker, that in a sane world would collapse the entire narrative that Floyd, a sanctified martyr figure, died as a result of Chauvin's knee on his neck. but that he instead succumbed to a lethal dose of fentanyl that was in his system on his final day. Quote, I called Dr. Baker early that morning to tell him about the case and to ask him if he would perform the autopsy on Mr. Floyd. He called me later in the day on that Tuesday and told me there were no medical findings that showed any injury to the vital structures of Mr. Floyd's neck. There were no medical indications of asphyxia or strangulation. Hennepin County Prosecutor Amy Sweezy swore under oath. In other words, Tucker said then, George Floyd, according to the official autopsy, was not murdered. He died instead of what we used to call natural causes, which in his case would include decades of drug use as well as the fatal concentration of fentanyl that was in his system on that final day. So this was not a killing. It was another narcotics OD in a country that records more than 100,000 of them every year. The medical examiner, examiner clearly understood this. In fact, articulated it, uh, according to Sweezy's sworn deposition. This blows the entire thing up. And, Pete, our nation has been a drastically different one since that day. And no one is going to unring that bell. Yeah. You and I discussed this two years ago, Bob, because there was a report that came out that mirrored precisely what you just said with respect to a medical examination of George Floyd. And the fact that if it hadn't been for all of the publicity surrounding it and the almost unbelievable pressure to come with come up with a desired outcome, a desired result, that means making sure that Derek Chauvin and, and others were considered guilty of killing George Floyd. Um, you know, this this autopsy report showed that the ingestion of fentanyl and a couple of other uh, I don't remember what meth they were meth meth, right. meth was another one, yeah. Yeah, was had the pathologist not known who the person was or what had allegedly transpired prior to the death, he would have come to the conclusion that the cause of death was overdose. 
Okay, it wasn't contusions to the neck. It wasn't asphyxiation. It wasn't any of these other things, uh, and it wasn't compression, uh, spinal compression. Um, so you know, look, I'm not a forensic pathologist. I don't know uh, what the ultimate cause of death were. There may have been contributing factors, but the bottom line here is we've got now a couple of reports that indicate that hey. This was a function of George Floyd, who, you know, look, I, I hate speaking ill of the dead, but the fact of the matter is he was a career criminal and he was a drug user, died in the way a lot of career criminals and drug users do, and it was a self-inflicted. Remember all of the evidence that, first of all, remember all the pressure that was placed on the jury and the fact that that should have been, that the um, trial should never have occurred where it did. It should have been moved because of the pressure. There's no doubt. Journalists were following the jurors around. They were scared to death if they didn't come up with a prescribed result that they'd be in trouble. But nonetheless, you, you take a look at some of the, the evidence that was, that was available at that time. And the fact that, um, you know, we, we had when George Floyd was in his car before Derek Chauvin even arrived. He was already saying he can't breathe. He can't breathe. That's right. He was having problems breathing. Uh, th- this was, you know, again. All ignored. Um, All of that evidence was ignored because of what you said at the beginning of this, that anybody who did not see the coverage of and the video, uh, anybody who examined him would have just said exactly what you said about how and why he died. But because everybody had been prejudiced, prejudging the situation based by on that video, they said, well, that had to be what killed him. Yeah. Um, you know, many of us know that you should be very skeptical, skeptical and withhold judgment with respect to any inflammatory story that the media reports, or any story that the media reports. You know, this is similar to, just a couple of days ago, is a good example, when almost every major media outlet said that Israel hit a Hamas hospital with a rocket, and which was just the opposite of what had happened. It was not true. But media narratives, first of all, whether intentional or not, because sometimes it's one of these things where they develop a life of their own, but it always seems to follow a prescribed path. That is, the media makes a judgment, and it always leans left as to how a story should play out. They've come to their own conclusions before there's been any kind of an examination or an investigation, and then they fit in the gradually revealed facts to fulfill or support their narrative. I've seen it myself in in cases or in stories I've been involved in. Uh, So, and I think most of your listeners, we're dealing with a very sophisticated crowd here, that they understand that. Uh, Virtually every story that I've ever been involved in, it's almost the complete opposite of what the true facts are. But that's what happened to a large extent in the George Floyd situation, and we had a huge conflagration across the land as a yep. result. It was not good. Somebody has to ask, what good came out of that? And we became more polarized. A lot of people lost their lives, billions of dollars in damages, and more. just as important as all of that, and I don't want to diminish you know, anything uh, related to people's deaths and misfortune, but the fact is we have become a more polarized nation as a result, and we are... A lot, a lot of people believe a lie. History about this will be written falsely, and that yeah. harms America drastically. It does. And, and you know, it's, it's so much more, though, than that, because as I started to mention, and Tucker talked about this, too, because George Floyd died, 
uh, kids don't have to study anymore if they're people if they're students of yep. color because George Floyd died. White men can't get hired for jobs that they are overqualified for because uh, because we need to have more equity and more and more uh, racial balance because George Floyd died shoplifting and stealing up to nine hundred ninety nine dollars, I think is what it is, uh, is legal in the state of California. They will not even pursue you if you steal under a thousand dollars at a time because George Floyd died. Decriminalization of stealing, of riding, of smashing and looting, as long as they're in you know service of a good cause as determined by the rider and the looter and the stealer. Uh, defunding of police happened because George Floyd died. More mm-hmm. crime is ha- all of these things, Peter, and they all happened because George Floyd died under the knee of a police officer whose knee did not kill him. Now, by the way, in no way, shape, or form does that mean I'm suddenly a Derek Chauvin fan because Derek Chauvin's an idiot. His cavalier attitude while kneeling on the back of George Floyd, hands in his pockets, kind of almost smiling for the cameras as people watched on, was horrific to see. Uh, and, and he's an idiot, and he's a disgrace to the uniform. But he didn't kill George Floyd. And all of these ramifications that you just talked about and I just listed happened because George Floyd overdosed. That's the reality yeah. of the situation. Yeah, that's exactly right. And, you know... Um I remember I was Tucker's first guest after this happened, and all of this, it's almost like um, a, 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 um, a novel. I, as I said on the, in that program, the day after it happened, almost everybody could predict how this was going to unfold because facts were not as relevant as the narrative, and they would take certain selective facts, meaning media and progressives and others, to fit the narrative, and you knew that it was going to be an unassailable narrative. You couldn't challenge it, and it was going to take on a life of its own anywhere. It, you know, the old thing about, you know, the um, a, a lie goes around the earth, uh, you know, twice or something before the truth gets a chance to put on its shoes or put on its boots. Well, that's what happened here, and you knew how this was going to unfold, and that's the, the tragedy of it. And unfortunately, if something even remotely similar happens, we're going to see this happening again, yep. regardless of what the facts are, doesn't matter. And we saw that again just recently with the media's leaping on that story about the rocket attack, the purported rocket attack by Israelis yeah. in a Hamas hospital. This well, is, we are being so poorly served, Bob, but um, you know the truth eventually prevails. Unfortunately, not after a lot of damage has been done to lives and property. Pete, you said it's almost like a novel. I think maybe somebody should write one. Uh, you know anybody who writes novels? Yeah, well, you know, wait for my next one, because we're going to be moving <laughs> along these lines. You kind of predicted where I'm going with these things. But i uh, got a couple more coming out, Bob, uh, and awesome. I'll let everybody know exactly when. I don't know the exact date, but it's going to be toward the end of the year. Maybe we'll talk about that next week. Peter Kirstenau, great stuff, my Thanks, friend. Bob. Thank you so much. You got Bye-bye. it. All right, we'll take a time out now, top of the hour break. Then we're going to talk to John Hagan, who's a member of the Ohio Board of Education, who may not have any more powers as a member of the Ohio Board of Education. We'll explain and tell you that story next, Always Right Radio. This hour of Always Right Radio is brought to you by The Floor King and KeepingMedicareSimple.com. You and I know and do not believe that life is so dear and peace so sweet as to be purchased at the price of chains and slavery. If nothing in life is worth dying for, when did this begin? Just in the face of this enemy? Or should Moses have told the children of Israel to live in slavery under the pharaohs? Should Christ have refused the cross? Should the patriots at Concord Bridge have thrown down their guns and refused to fire the shot heard round the world? The martyrs of history were not fools. And our honored dead, who gave their lives to stop the advance of the Nazis, didn't die in vain. 
Where then is the road to peace? Well, it's a simple answer after all. You and I have the courage to say to our enemies, there is a price we will not pay. There is a point beyond which they must not advance. This is Always Right Radio with Bob Frantz on AM 1420, The Answer. All right, third and final hour of this Tuesday broadcast is underway now at seven minutes past 11 o'clock. Thank you so much for being with us. It is the 24th morning of the 10th month in the year of our Lord, 2023. This is the first day since the horrific attack in Israel on October 7th that I have not discussed Israel, the attack by Hamas, the attack by Hezbollah, the attack by Iran, the Israeli response, ramifications and impact on the United States ramifications and impact on our bases and embassies around the world and every other element of that that you can think of. I just haven't had um, I haven't had a day go by that we haven't discussed that in depth. Today's the first day, but we're not going to keep it that way. Coming up at the bottom of the hour, I'm going to share a piece of audio with you that is really, really important for you to hear. The BBC is very, very... Uh, extraordinarily strong in their in their opposition to Israel and a BBC anchor made the mistake of interviewing a representative for uh, UK um, uh, the uh, UK lawyers for Israel the director of UK lawyers for Israel named Natasha Hosdorf and questioned her about Israel's not proportionate response to the attack and about collective punishment and about war crimes being committed by Israel. These are the allegations of the BBC anchor. It was a spectacular interview. And we're going to talk about what Israel has a right to do under international law, under the laws regarding war and war crimes and so forth. It's a, it's a phenomenal piece you're going to want to hear. So that'll be at the bottom of the hour. We're not going to let the entire day go by without discussing the Israel situation. But we are focused on a lot of domestic issues today, as Kersenow and I discussed, as Jack Windsor and I discussed earlier, and as we are going to discuss now with a member of the Ohio Board of Education. John Hagen joins us on AM 1420, The Answer, with the latest on a board that is, uh, well, in a state of flux right now. John, good morning. It's good to have you back on our program here in Cleveland. How are you? Good, sir. I'm not able to hear John. Uh, I don't think he's been punched up. I think it's the problem. There we go. John, are you there? Hello, John. Okay. Something's going on here because he's unable to hear me, and uh, I am certainly unable to hear him. Um, all right. Uh, it's flashing. I don't know what that means, but uh, it's flashing if it's supposed to be solid or not. Okay. It doesn't matter. Okay. Uh, let's, re- let's reestablish the connection then. Let's uh, let's let's call John back and try this again. Uh, unless you can hear me now, John, are you there? All right, this is a nightmare. All right, let's call him back. Uh, John Hagen is again a member of the state board. When I say it's a uh, it's a it's a board of education in flux, what I mean is, do they have any power anymore or not? Um, the people, the representatives, rather of the people of the state of Ohio. Um, meaning our General Assembly, decided that the, and this was in their budget uh, budget bill, decided that the Board of Education no longer actually had to make decisions regarding education, that that was going to be left to a newly appointed position by the governor in what is going to be called the Ohio Board of Education and Workforce. 
and that the titles given to Board of Education members were going to be largely ceremonial. They weren't going to be able to have any power to establish anything anymore. It's been a big source of controversy, and that's why we're trying to connect with John Hagan to talk about that. Is, uh, is he there now? John, can you hear me this time? Yes, I can. Okay, okay, good. Good to have you back on the program. Sorry about uh, whatever the heck happened there. No problem. So, um, as I understand it, a little bit earlier this month, um, there was a meeting among uh, board members, but not all of them. Eleven of them met met for what was supposed to be a monthly meeting to discuss uh, a number of issues, uh, but that not everyone was there, uh, and it's in part because of a lot of confusion over what kinds of powers and what kind of responsibilities and obligations the Ohio School Board uh, uh, maintains now that there is a a Board of Education and Workforce and uh, essentially an executive position that is going to be running state education. Can you give us the lay of the land right now as to where this stands and who is going to be making decisions about curriculum and more in Ohio schools? Well, if I had to uh, go from experience, I would say that the decisions will continue to be made by bureaucrats. Um, And when I say that, not just the newly newly appointed people, but the most of the employees of the Department of Education are switching over to the new Department of Education and Workforce. Uh, that being said, uh, it would be a stretch to think that there will be a lot of change, uh, at least in the short term. Uh, I understand the need to have uh, bodies. But I also realize that uh, if you don't weed out the bodies that are creating the problems, you haven't solved anything. Well, that's a very good point. Um, It's my understanding that the pushback against the creation of this position for the uh, director or czar or whatever he's going to be called of Ohio uh, um, uh, Department of Education and Workforce um, that the pushback is coming from both sides, those on the Democrat side and the Republican side or left and right on the on the board, that everybody kind of is opposed to this because, of, like I said, it almost creates, you know, pretty much ceremonial titles for you guys without giving you much authority anymore. Is that accurate? Are you guys kind of united in the opposition of this? That, uh, we are not as conservatives involved in the lawsuit. Um you know, we we would love to see education uh, working like it should under the current system. Uh, I, I've spoken to you about this before, and I've taken somewhat of a neutral position personally because I'm not happy with the way things have been going. Uh, I I know that our board as a whole has typically been head nodders that just get run by the department. And if that's the case, uh, there's a possibility that this new system might be better. Uh, I'm not holding my breath because I've seen government in action before, and a lot of times it's a lot of rhetoric, but not a lot of action. Uh, I, I heard a rumor that our old superintendent uh, was going to be hired back in uh, to the other department. And, and for the time that he was superintendent, while I was on the board, I wanted him to leave from the first day I met him. Uh, so he, he was very supportive of the resolution uh, for the, uh, the Black Lives Matter supporting resolution, uh, the CRT stuff, 
Uh, he cried about George Floyd in one of our meetings. Uh, this this is the kind of people that will not, in my opinion, solve these problems. Uh, you know, just the name of this Department of Education and Workforce sounds kind of dystopian to me. Uh, I, I cringe a little bit when I think about you know all of the failed communist situations where workforce was operated by the government and children were forced to decide, not to decide, they were forced to go a particular direction early in time based on some bureaucrat's decision. I'm hoping that this doesn't develop to that point. Uh, I think there's very positive things that could come out of this. Uh, Let's all pray that that's the case. We are talking with uh, John Hagan. He's, of course, a longtime public servant. He's been in the Ohio House of Representatives. He's, uh, again, a member of the Ohio School Board now. Um, so it's interesting that you called the, the name of it kind of dystopian, and I do understand the point you just made by, by your explanation there. I didn't have a problem with the idea of Department of Education and Workforce not looking at it through that lens, but just the idea that for many of us, particularly who are conservative-minded, we have great trouble with the direction of the higher education system. And more kids are going to college, which is becoming more expensive, and they're taking out bigger loans, and they're coming out of there with degrees that are useless and worthless in the real world. And I think there's a big movement toward pushing kids into the workforce out of, uh, uh, you know, at the very, at the bare, at the bare minimum, maybe, maybe do a trade school thing, you know, learn a, learn a skill, learn a trade so that you don't have to go to college, get that massive indoctrination of left-wing ideology to pay and then paying hundreds of thousands of dollars for the right to do it. Maybe it is better to go into the workforce. Is that a, is that a realistic way of looking at it? I absolutely agree 100%. And, as you know, I'm a heating and plumbing contractor, and uh, we deal every day with the load on on our type of trade that can't be met because we don't have enough people. Uh, so, you know, our phones ring off the hook. Uh, I return as many calls as I can, but I could spend all my time telling people we can't take care of them. Uh, so it's, it's frustrating from that aspect. I, of course, always try to look at the overall picture. And when I make the statement about dystopian, I, I know there are uh, those threats are out there. That can happen. So I think that people need to be very diligent in paying attention to how this goes about and that we don't end up in a situation where kids are told in sixth grade that you're going to do this trade or you're going to do that. Uh, first of all, you know, things change so fast nowadays that, uh, it's unlikely somebody will be in one uh, trade throughout their life. But I absolutely welcome all the training, all the opportunity, but I just hope that we don't get into a situation where decisions are made away from that personal decision. John, the, we're talking to John Hagan, Ohio Board of Education. Now, again, I mean, quite literally, the governor says that the ODE is no longer in existence. It is now DEW, Department of Education and Workforce. I mean, I think we're all going to have to get used to that, I suppose. Uh, so John Hagan is a member of DEW, the Department of Education and Workforce. Okay. It's my understanding that a judge in Franklin County 
um, essentially on that lawsuit uh, said that the Democrats who filed the lawsuit don't have standing here and that's dead. Is that right? Or is there another lawsuit in place here to stop this uh, transition from the board having the power to the the executive having the power? My understanding is that the uh, they questioned that, that whether they had standing, and so then they dropped the restraining order that kept the thing from moving forward. Okay, so the case is still in place. Okay, so the, the judge case, hasn't the case, ruled. They he just he just said there is a yeah, question of not, standing. Okay, I, I thought the judge ruled there was no standing. The case out or anything like that. Okay, uh, but they did, you know, stop holding back the change allowed in the law. And I will clarify one thing. Okay. Uh, we, as, as a board, will be a totally separate entity from Department of Education and Workforce. Uh, we will now be the uh, state school board and not be associated with, essentially, uh, that department. Uh, we will have our own budget. Uh, we'll have our own employees. And we have our very limited duties. Uh, such as choosing a superintendent of public instruction by title who will be over uh, the department, the state board of education department, that will do teacher licensing, territory transfers, uh, teacher discipline. Mm-hmm. And th- here's, the, here's the killer, though. And this, is, this is, gives you an idea of where uh, the legislature stands and how they feel about the state board. Uh, estimated budget for the new uh, department, school board uh, department, is $15 million. The law requires that all of the money come from teacher licensing fees. Teacher licensing fees generate about $10 million. So where's the other five going to be coming from? Well, I don't know whether we're supposed to, uh, from their perspective, immediately raise fees on on teacher licensing uh, so that everybody will hate us. Including, That'll be popular. Uh, that's what I'm saying. I, yeah. I think that might be, might be the incentive. Uh, personally, I would like to see teacher licensing uh, reduced. We have, a, we have a ridiculous number of individual licenses uh, you know, I, I would liken it to uh, if if you worked in a plant and you had to have a license to push the broom and a license to turn on the light switch, and you know, uh, it, this is, it's so micromanaged at this point. Yeah, it sounds. I would like to see the, the total for the fees go down. In other words, uh, if we could if we could go back to licensing that allowed people that were capable of teaching a variety of subjects and a variety of grades under one license, it would be better. But, of course, think of the the conundrum that comes here with a person who's on the board saying all of your income comes from licensing. So there isn't much incentive for reducing the number of licenses or the fees if you have to run your department based only on that. Right. Right, that's it's just another element to this. Then the the uh, the uh, the budget factor and uh, and how that's going to be met. 
I'm I'm more worried about curriculum right now, obviously, or curricula on a plural basis, uh, and and who gets to make those decisions. Obviously, that was board-directed and superintendent-led and so forth, and now with this DEW, uh, that is going to be the the real issue going forward. John Hagan, member of the Ohio Board of Education. Uh, John, thanks for uh, for coming on and filling us in on where things are as the situation develops and we start to get some answers as to how it's going to look and also the answer to the rest of that funding and if licensing fees are going up as we have uh, new information develops, we hope you'll come back on with us and share. I, I appreciate it, and uh, I would just tell you that if the option of raising licenses comes up, I'll be a no vote on that. Uh, and like I say, I'd like to I'd like to see if things streamlined. Awesome. Uh, I, I think that we could do with less employees. I think that we could do with less money. Uh, and you know, they're they're shifting about. Uh, a little over 10% of all of the employees into our area. Uh, at least that's their plan. Uh, once, well, once we have a superintendent and so on, hopefully we'll get some things together that make, make this better than what it is. I hope so. I hope so as well. John Hagan, okay. thanks very much for the time. We appreciate it, sir. Thank you. You got it. it. All right, that's John Hagan joining us. We'll take a time out here. Always Right Radio on AM 1420, The Answer. Giving you reason in the age of unreason. Always right radio with Bob France and the answer. All right, right back on AM 1420, the answer. We've had a very, very busy day. And as mentioned, um, we haven't done much on Israel today at all. In fact, we haven't talked about the war and its impact on the United States at all. But I want to I take this last segment. I want you to listen to something that's important. Everybody's questioning. Not everybody, but a lot of people are questioning around the world. What limitations should be placed on Israel? When it comes to the response, and it's not really a response for retribution or, as they like to call it, collective punishment. It's an attempt to destroy and kill the organization that has declared war on them so they don't come back and have another bite at the apple and kill another nearly 1,500 Israelis, murder, rape, behead, and everything else, women and children. That's what's supposed to happen here. Israel has a right to defend itself. This is not about revenge. It is about proactiveness. Reaction and proaction, actually, because they have to have the right to do it. Anyway, people are so worried about what Israel is going to do and what kind of collateral damage there might be in Gaza to the Palestinians that seem to be the only thing people are concerned about right now. That's a problem. So I want you to listen to this interview between Natasha Hosdorf and a BBC uh, anchor named Katya Adler. This is from two days ago. It is worth our time Natasha represents the UK Lawyers for Israel organization, and she's going to do what I think everybody should be doing here, and that is tell the truth. She strips the bark off of this BBC, which is an anti-Israel news organization, uh, and her lies about what Israel is allowed to do and has been doing. Please listen to this. Well, we can now speak to Natasha Hausdorff. She's a barrister and international law expert who also liaises with UK lawyers in Israel. And she joins me now from London. Thank you very much for joining us. Good morning, Cassie. First of all, in this situation, good morning, this very tense situation, uh, people are looking for glimmers of hope. One of those being the arrival of, of the first trucks of aid, another, the release of 
two of the hostages um, currently held inside Gaza. A reminder, we're two weeks on today from a massacre inside Israel. 1,400 people killed. Uh, the number of hostages taken into Gaza has been updated by Israel today to 210. That's in addition to the two who were uh, released overnight. Um, I was just wondering if I could ask you, from a legal perspective, how does, do governments go about trying to negotiate uh, the release of these hostages? What concessions could be offered, even though we've been told in this case none, none were? H how would it work? Well, of course, the negotiations and the international diplomacy associated um, is, is a separate consideration entirely from the legal position. Uh, and we've heard, certainly from your reporting this morning, about international efforts uh, behind the developments. But, of course, those developments need to be seen in the context of, of this abduction, as you've been reporting, of over 200 hostages uh, and those crimes of, of Hamas and other Palestinian terrorist uh, organizations which have led to a humanitarian crisis. Uh, also in Israel, where the families of these hostages know that the orders of these terrorists were specifically to target women and children for kidnap and torture. Um, the international law aspects of this are, of course, extremely important, and, and myths about Israel's conduct about international law have been playing a significant role uh, in this crisis uh, and in the coverage of it. Uh, and perhaps I can be clear that from an international law perspective, Israel does not only have the right to a robust response, but under the Convention on the Prevention and the Punishment of Genocide, the crime of genocide, it also has an affirmative obligation, like the rest of the signatories to that convention, to make sure that never again means never again. Well, as you say, under international law, Israel has the right to defend itself. As we've been saying, these uh, attacks uh, orchestrated by Hamas inside Israel two weeks ago today were unprecedented. We're talking about a massacre as well as hostage taking of people, including women and children. Also under international law, though, as well as the right to defend yourself as a party, uh, you, there are also rules of war and engagement. So it's not that you can't defend yourself. It's how you defend yourself in the situation. In this case, how Israel defends itself. And there's been a lot of concentration. We've been talking about aid today. The plight of Palestinian civilians on the ground, uh, that siege that's been tightened on the Gaza Strip until today. No food, no water, no medical supplies, aerial bombardments day and night aimed, Israel says, at Hamas and Hamas infrastructure. But the number of casualties amongst civilians has been very, very high. Well, let me pick up, if I may, on those points in turn. In compliance with its obligations under international law to minimise civilian casualties, Israel is issuing warnings of where it will be striking Hamas terrorist infrastructure. It's a practice used by all law-abiding countries. It is telling them to leave in order to try to save their lives. And, of course, there has also been mass evacuation of Israeli civilians from the north and south of Israel, away from the borders with terrorist organisations. But there is another myth here, that Israel has an obligation to supply Hamas terrorists with electricity and other goods, and that is without basis in international law. Israel is not required to fund or assist Hamas war efforts as it attempts to butcher Jews. Uh, and of course, since Hamas violently seized control in 2007, Israel has continued to provide a part of uh, Gaza's fuel, uh, electricity, water, 
uh, and also medical care to Palestinian civilians that Hamas neglects and abuses. That isn't viable during a military campaign where Hamas exploits these transfers, stealing supplies and penetrating humanitarian organizations to mask its terror uh, operations and to launder funds. And Hamas uses the electricity grid in Gaza to continue to fire missiles onto Israeli civilians. That firing has continued in the course of the last hour and, and your broadcasts. And of course, some of these rockets from Gaza uh, fall short, as we saw with the Al-Ali hospital car park. Uh, in the case of Palestinian Islamic Jihad, um, a third of the rockets fired in the last exchange of theirs fell short, killing many Gazan civilians. Uh, but I must stress in relation to your question, there is no requirement to provide resources. International law only requires that Israel facilitate the passage of food and medicine by third parties if such goods can be reliably delivered without diversion to Hamas. And we know that is not the case because Hamas controls Gaza. And in fact, the basic rules outlined by the Geneva and the Hague Conventions are, are, are that sieges are lawful unless they are deliberately aimed at starving the local population. The IDF has been repeatedly clear about its objectives, defeating Hamas, establishing a new reality in Gaza where Israel doesn't face a genocidal terror organization that has uh, the will or capability to attack Israeli civilians and rescuing the hostages. And if governments and international organizations... And Natasha Hausdorff, if I could, sorry, if I could just, if I could just interrupt you there, sorry, uh, just a moment, Natasha Hausdorff, sorry to interrupt you, but you've made um, a, a number of points very clearly uh, from your perspective. Uh, as you say, under international law, and I, unlike you, I am not an international uh, lawyer. Uh, Israel in this case, or it, it is it, it is allowed by parties under international law, if they can argue their reasons why, to have a siege. But what is not allowed under international law is something that is alleged by uh, aid agencies, for example. And they say that what the, the effect on Palestinian civilians stuck inside Gaza, they say, seems like collective punishment seems like collective punishment, they say. Collective punishment is not allowed under international law. Of course, all of these legal uh, questions are hotly contested. Uh, well, it's flatly um, not borne out by the facts on the ground. And if these aid organizations are um, invested in uh, the interests of Gazan civilians, then they should devote their resources to facilitating the safe and rapid evacuation of Gazan civilian population to the south which Hamas has been uh, seeking to hamper with reports of it bombing fleeing civilians. But the allegation that you have uh, raised, um, Katya, is a, a reprehensible moral equivalence. Um, and it is being drawn, uh, it is utterly morally repugnant. Uh, it also attaches, of course, to the suggestion of, of proportionality in international law, uh, that that is um, about comparing casualty figures. And, and that is also not correct. Um, every strike that uh, Israel takes, every military action is weighed up, it is analysed to make sure that according to international law, the anticipated collateral damage, the harm to civilians, is proportionate to the military aims of a strike, a strike that is militarily necess necessary uh, and legitimately targets terrorist infrastructure. So these uh, suggestions of collective punishment um, are morally reprehensible liable. Um as Natasha Hausdorff, you say that uh, these allegations aren't borne out by facts on the ground. It is 
objective bodies such as the International Criminal Court, for example, uh, who are brought up um, in times of conflict to examine situations and every single individual case about whether the rules of law or engagement were respected in individual particular uh, cases. But we thank you very much for your time. Uh, All right, there you have it. I, I really think that was worth the price of admission alone, honestly. I, I wanted you to hear that because I wanted you to hear how things should be handled. You have a very, very anti-Israel BBC anchor uh, just getting her, her rear end handed to her by Natasha. That was Natasha Hosdorf, a barrister in London and the director of UK Lawyers for Israel. And I think that was a perfect way to wrap up today's show. We didn't talk about Israel a ton today, but I wanted to give you that. So that's going to do it. Thanks to my crew, Seth and Marianne and Marcy, and thanks to you for being a part of the show. And uh, we're back again tomorrow, bright and early, 9 o'clock. We'll see you then. Have a great day. Bye-bye. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for donald trump to hire i find out the worst enemy that i'm going to face in my life is right here in america they took my assessment and they wanted me to change it i was like i'm not changing it they had to get rid of flynn with in-depth interviews archival footage and never before seen personal records of the man behind the headlines i just felt like i was drowning flynn deliver the truth whatever the cost available now watch it today go to salemnow.com salemnow.com